Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are a abundantly provided for and richly blessed people. Thank you, Father, just for the worship team that was just here and for those folks that each week that bring us to a point of worship through song. I just thank you, Father, for the time and expenditure that they invest in this people. Father, I also thank you for the book of Ruth, and I thank you for the encouragement and the provision that it has provided for us. For the next few minutes, Father, I pray, Father, that your word would speak through me, and I pray, Father, that we would be attentive and ask you, Father, to continue to sanctify and work on our hearts. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for this church and this fellowship, and I thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. These things we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I've got a quick trivia question for you. Um, in the Hebrew Bible, does anybody know what book comes right before the book of Ruth? Anybody got an idea? Morris, you can't answer. It's Proverbs. In the Proverbs is uh, Proverbs 31, the P31 woman. You know, all the things that we talk about, at least when you were a single guy and you were looking for your wife and you were looking for a P31, it was uh, Proverbs 31. So that's something I stumbled on this week that I thought was pretty interesting. The cornerstone verse that we'll be focused on tonight is... Um, that we'll get to at the end, but I wanted to bring it up because we'll be getting there. But those of you that have children, uh, they'll, they have been focused on this verse for the last couple of weeks, and it's in Ruth chapter 4, verse 14, and I'll just read it, and then we'll get there shortly. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. And the thing that I want us to remember as we continue in our study of Ruth tonight is that, that Ruth really is not a cultural love story where boy meets girl and you know everything is happily ever after and one of the things that came to mind this week as as we continued the study was that really this is the redemption story this is God's design and similar to what we looked at in the temple where everything has its place and what we're going to see over the next two chapters in chapter three and chapter four is God's design his design for our redemption and for his provision in our life. One of the continuing themes that we're going to continue to talk about is we introduced a new word last week, and it was the word hesed. And God's hesed is the centerpiece of the story, and hesed is used in Psalms 127 times and is mostly translated as loving kindness, steadfast love, mercy, or loyalty. And hesed is regularly used as the object verb to do. It's an action verb. Hesed is defined in the context of our study as the consistent, ever faithful, relentless, consistent, pursuing, extravagant, unrestrained, furious love of God our Father. I don't know about you, but I take a lot of peace and a lot of comfort in that. And we had three points last week that we talked about that I just want to, re want to remind you of quickly First was that land and lineage was everything and that without land and lineage, everything was lost. Two, 
Ruth speaks to us regarding the importance of relationships. Without being a friend or bringing a friend, in a place where you have the opportunity to work in the gospel, you're never really going to learn and you're never really going to change. The gospel, the transforming action of the gospel happens in the lives and in the community of Christ. Number three, there are signs of hope in the life of every believer. One thing that we talked about last week and it's still fresh on my mind as I look out across the room and I know the stories of families that walk in this fellowship. If I had one thing to say from you or one thing to say to you from last week is never doubt the sovereignty of God. Don't forget that he is still there. He is still working in 10,000 ways to glorify himself and to provide for you. He's still there in the hard and the mundane. Last week, we left off in Ruth chapter 2, verse 20. As Ruth is returning to the field of Boaz, to Naomi, abundantly supplied and richly blessed, the fog of depression is lifting from Naomi as she's seeing the hesed of God in action. Naomi is recognizing, or excuse me, Naomi also recognizes the name of Boaz in verse 220 as a close relative. At the end of chapter 1, we have a situation of sorrow and bitterness, aloneness and poverty. But in chapter 2, the situation is beginning to change and it's full of hope and it's full of comfort and provision is beginning to be recognized by Ruth and Naomi. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Ruth chapter 3 starting in verse 1 and we'll read verses 1 through 5. Then Naomi said to her mother-in-law and said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. During the weeks of the barley and wheat harvest, Naomi had had time to think. She had had time to put a plan together. And so when she had had the opportunity to uh, pray through this and work through this, uh, she began to act. She initiated. And what I want you to see in verse, um, or in verses 1 through 5, I want you to catch the reference back to Ruth chapter 1 verse 9 where where the text says, Ruth in her sacrifice to Naomi as a, as a Moabitess, an outcast, had all but given up the prospect, of, the prospect of marriage. Now, it looked like there might be a chance for marriage, a point of redemption to find a home, to find rest, or, or to be settled. Here in chapter 3, verses chapter 1, we begin to see where God's hesed is beginning to come together. 
Cer certainly Naomi's plan could backfire. And of course, Naomi is keenly aware of the risks. But it's a bold move of, of faith. And she identifies Boaz not because of his, of his community credentials, but because character and his blood relations, he is her goel. So what does the word goel mean? Well, it's, it's the Hebrew word for, for kinsman redeemer. So what's a kinsman, a kinsman redeemer? I apologize. I'm a little warm. <laughs> so let's just get that out of the way. Turn to Leviticus chapter 25 and let's look at verse 10. Chapter 25, verse 10 says, And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants, and it shall be a jubilee for you, and when each of you returns to his own clan. Now, this is something that's very unique that you probably touched on just a little bit in the book of Joshua. And in the formal Jewish law, when Joshua and the people of Israel entered the land, all of the land was divided amongst families. And God knew this because of unforeseen, unforeseen circumstances and unforeseen problems that life would have, that variations in ability. Some families would fall into poverty. Some circumstances would come about where people would lose their land. So God made two very redemptive clauses in the law, two provisions for his people. Why? This was a very gracious thing. It was also God's design that his people would not be characterized by huge diversities between rich and poor. So the first provision was that God said every 50 years, all of the land goes back. In other words, the family, the heirs that lost the land got another chance. Secondly, but before the 50 years was over, the land could be bought back, but only by a kinsman. In other words, by a family member. The land could be redeemed out of debt. This was a way of keeping families together, keeping the Christian community together. It was a gracious thing. Thank you, bro. Yeah, God's chesed. It was a gracious thing towards families. And one of the things that I want to ask you about and talk about for just a moment is how can we as brothers and sisters in Christ move towards each other in a gracious way? We talked some about that last week. We're talking about it now is how God has moved towards his people in a gracious way. So how can we as brothers and sisters in Christ move towards each other in a gracious way? Deacons, how do you move towards the body in a gracious way? That's right. 
Okay, let's chase that trail a minute. How do you, um, based on last week, how are we aware of a need? Through relationships and friendships, that's exactly right. What else? Right. Keeping eyes open and ears open. It's being attentive. It's as you go. It's reading your emails and your text messages. It's answering your cell phone at 9.30 and I'm the deacon that goes to bed at 9.15 and praying somebody else will get it. (laughs) Okay, so if we move towards others in a gracious way, where are there parts and corners in our life where we treat others as marginal? You don't necessarily think about treating others as marginal But can you consider or can you think about places and times where you've treated others as marginal? Maybe you don't want to share that. But I know I have. It just wasn't important. Or it was inconvenient. Now back to the kinsman redeemer. Now this is where the plot thickens and it gets really good. The cost of redemption in this case to Boaz would be enormous. The potential supply of grace in this particular set of circumstances was not cheap. First of all, he would have to buy the land. He could, but it, in this set of circumstances, it would be an enormous debt. Second, in the case of the family, they really couldn't be restored because there were no heirs. There was no descendants. No one to pass the land to. For the family to really be restored he would have to marry the last remaining family member. And that was Naomi. But Naomi was old, and she couldn't raise up children. Yet the law provided under leveret marriage when a man died without an heir that the lineage could be restored. Under this law, the brother of the deceased could could marry the remaining family member and restore the lineage. But what a cost that would be. So what could he do? He couldn't marry Naomi. He would have to marry Ruth. Ruth, a Moabitess. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3. To illustrate the cost that Boaz was facing to put it in perspective for us to understand the circumstances in which Boaz was operating in, Deuteronomy 23.3 says, No Ammonite, no Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. So who would put themselves in such debt? Who would cross social lines? Who would cross racial lines? But Ruth and Naomi go for broke. They know that if there is anyone in the land of Judah that can potentially or even possibly help them, it's Boaz, a man with a heart of grace. 
He's a known quantity that has already demonstrated the hesed of God to Ruth and Naomi. But don't miss the point here. They moved in faith. They moved understanding and beginning to understand the hesed of God. Sometimes we are called into situations that are clear but hard. The decision is clear and the, and the decision is hard in the actions that we have to take. So they moved in faith and both Ruth and Boaz had, have demonstrated a godly character. Both of their actions are motivated by Hesed and both are called upon to make a selfless sacrifice that really in the circumstances and the context that we're walking in here rises to a kingdom significance. Both are functioning as redeemers. Boaz moves to redeem Ruth and Ruth moves to redeem Naomi. So what's going on here? We talked about that design. We talked about just that, that memory verse there in chapter 4 starting in verse 14. So what's happening here where folks are beginning to redeem one another? What's the plan here? I mean, does this still sound like a love story? What does this biblical design of redemption look like? We talked about it last week. We talked about the biblical design of how we influence people. How was Ruth converted on that Moabite highway? So my question that I want us to consider for the next few minutes is, what does the biblical design of redemption look like? Clay just said that we're desperate to be redeemed, that those were the circumstances that they were walking in. The thing that I was thinking about was a costly friendship. Last week we talked about a friendship. This week I want to focus more on a costly friendship. So practically speaking, as you bring this into the context of this fellowship and you bring this into the context of your lives, what are your friends costing you? What did we define a friendship as last week? What were the two components of a friendship? Time and commitment equals a friendship. In other words, how are you being spent on others? Scott brought up the reference in 2 Corinthians 12, 15, where Paul states, I will gladly or I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Sometimes I think we think that the friendship is a touchy-feely thing. It's something that we just get together for, for entertainment. And really in the larger context of Christian community, it's the place where the gospel works itself into our heart and into our souls. It's, it's where we see the transforming power of the gospel. Look at Ruth 3, chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. At midnight, the man who had, had startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Translation, good heavens, what's going on here? Verse 9, he said, who are you? And she said, I am Ruth, your servant. 
spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Now, Ruth really steps out in faith here in a particular fashion. Not only has Ruth just crossed cultural lines as a destitute, barren foreigner, but confronts him not only with his legal obligations as a relative of Imelech, Ruth has also stretched the gleaning laws. Remember when she had asked permission to glean behind the harvesters, really what she was supposed to be doing is gleaning along the edges but she wanted to be behind the hay baler. She didn't want to just be out there on the sides. She wanted to be right in the row. And so Boaz grants that request. The second thing he does is, is he recognizes the request for a redeemer. Basically what she has just said here, will you marry me? That's what he's, or that's what she's really saying here. Leverett marriage was a brother's responsibility, and where she has stretched it is Boaz was not a brother. He was not a brother-in-law, and in fact, he was probably just a close cousin. Boaz could have easily walked away, but the Hesed of God compels Boaz to be his brother's keeper, even though his brother had long since been gone in that of Imelech. So why was Boaz the perfect choice for Ruth as a husband? What comes to mind when you think of Boaz? Why, why was he the perfect choice? Say, now say it one more time. Right, okay. Okay, Mrs. Morris has just pointed out that, that uh, Boaz was the son of Rahab and that he was not married. Maybe he was, maybe we, or maybe he wasn't. Honestly, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't get that particular point in the text, or I didn't study that, but that's a very good point. What did, what did someone else say? Right. Sure, sure. I mean, I mean, when he arrived in the hayfield or or in the wheat field, excuse me, he had just come from the. Uh, <laughs> y'all slipped there. I'm sorry, that wasn't in the script. <laughs> he had just arrived from the First National Bank of Bethlehem with the payroll. So, so, so the point was, I mean, certainly he could provide. So, so the next question I have is, and, and in thinking about this in regard to Sunday, I know. In, in our small group Sunday or Monday night, we, we were talking about what giants we faced. What giants were we dealing with? So what was Ruth potentially considering or what were the giants in Ruth's life as she considered going to that threshing floor? What were the risks involved? 
Absolutely, the vulnerability to her reputation. What else? Right. She had been given the rights to glean, and she could have possibly lost her provisional rights. Okay, what else? Exactly, she could have been assaulted or worse. So, rejection, she was a Moabitess, she could have lost her provision, she could have been hurt. And what I think we need to see here is the threshing floor is a moment of truth for Ruth and Boaz. Ruth is at the threshing floor because of a moment on a Moabite highway where she says and looks at Naomi and says, I want your God. Boaz Boaz has been obedient as a redeemer. Boaz, in the context of what we're talking about here, is an educated man. He understands what the Leveret marriage law is. He also understands what it means to be a kinsman redeemer. Both Ruth and Boaz understand in desire and indeed the Hesed of God on that holy night in Bethlehem. What was so compelling about this particular point in the story is that you have three people that have basically pre-enacted the gospel. The future invades the present that foretells of our future hope and our future redemption. And in looking at the submission that takes place on the threshing floor and the risk that Ruth takes... In obedience to Naomi, remember Naomi sent her there. What can you see in the story? How has your view of submission changed towards others? Can you see the picture of submission in the gospel here as Ruth demonstrates that? And then what does Boaz turn around and do? It's right there in the text. He says, I will do all that you've asked. So, how has your view of submission changed towards others? Pride sets in and sometimes we won't accept a blessing. Yes, sir. What else? or I think about it this way. How has or is your view of submission towards Christ changing? It may not be very practical, what Scott said. Bill is talking about the danger of following God in, in human terms. Similar to the discussion 
or actually the sermon that we had on Sunday where we're talking about giants that we face. Anybody else? Yes, humble yourself and trust. This is not in the notes, and but one of the things that I have seen, and, and I've watched others of you talk about at different points in time, is sometimes our view of the gospel is influenced by cultural circumstances. And it's like Scott said, it doesn't make sense. And we end up doing things that by the world standards that don't make sense. Yet if we're going to walk in submission and we're going to walk in obedience, that the only place that we have to go really is to submission. Let's look at Ruth chapter 4 verses 13 through 16. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer and may he be renowned in Israel. Now there's some question here and even as late this afternoon there was a couple of points that I talked with others about. In this particular verse whether he, he was talking he's not talking about Boaz but the reference is unto Christ or possibly even Obed. The verse goes on, he says, He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more than you than seven sons has given birth to him. So how many redeemers in this particular text do you see? Look at it again. So, both, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and, and then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his, his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nurse of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. There are three redeemers in the text. Ruth, the surprise redeemer, the suffering servant, she left her homeland to redeem her mother-in-law. She impoverished herself to save Naomi. Boaz, the formal redeemer, the kinsman redeemer, the Goel, the ancestor of Nashon. Does, any, does everybody remember who Nashon was last week? He was the prince of Judah. He was Boaz's ancestor. He's the dude that rode into the water in front of the Israelite army as the waters of the Red Sea parted and they did not part until they had reached his nose. He was an, he was an initiator. And then the third Redeemer we see here is Jesus Christ, but also one could allude to the fact that that could possibly be even Obed, as, in, as we think about Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, that talks about, for unto us a child is born. So we have a picture of at least three Redeemers here. And Ruth's name is lowered and the covenant is made large, and Ruth was all in for the sake of Naomi and her family. The great-grandmother of Christ, the foreigner, the outcast, the gleaner, the outcast was made whole because of an obedient heart. And then there's Boaz, his heart, he pours his heart into, a, into redeeming not only Ruth and Naomi, but also Imelech. 
Boaz demonstrates a very powerful submission in honoring the letter and the spirit of the law. He gives himself to save a family. And, and, and not at any time in this process does, does Boaz look for an off-ramp. He's willing to make a sacrifice of himself, his possessions, to help those that were helpless. His redemption of Ruth and Naomi is legal, immediate, and automatic. And this is the picture of what the gospel looks like. This is how God's dominion looks on earth. And then Naomi plays a key role in the events that ultimately lead to the birth of Israel's king and beyond that, the birth of Jesus. This broken, tired Naomi would never know how big of a role God was giving her, yet she is entirely covered in the entire process by the hesed of God. She does not realize her suffering is equipping her to raise a son, Obed, the grandfather of Israel's future king. Psalms 23, 6 says, Surely in your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life. So as we begin to wrap up our study on Ruth, what have we gained from it? First of all, we've talked about Hesed. We've talked about friendship. And we also talked about the signs of hope in the life of every believer. But I think there's one other thing, or actually there's two other things that we need to consider briefly. First of all, we also need to see that the cultural barrier is broken by grace. I don't know if you picked up on it in the story, but do you realize that our Lord and Savior came to us through an interracial marriage? Do you realize that? That's not culturally acceptable, but it's biblical. When the verse says, your daughter-in-law is better than seven sons, you know that in traditional culture, family is everything, and seven sons is a synonym for the perfect family. Seven is the perfect number, and here is just simply what this is saying, that grace, that, that the grace of God in a person's life and your relationship with the people whom that grace is more satisfying, more transforming than a perfect family. When we allow culture to, culture to define us versus God defining us, we think we have to have the perfect family, the perfect job, the perfect body, and hang with the perfect people. And many of us are all stressed out because we're all trying to be perfect. The gospel knocks all of that down because of our relationship with God. Because our relationship with God is not based on being better than other people. It's based on grace. To truly understand the gospel of Ruth and we consider what was going on in the culture, I think we should also see that the gospel of grace destroys snobbery and prejudice and should remove any condescension from our hearts towards others, the other race, other members, other colleagues, or other genders. How do you treat people that differ from you? If you feel condescension towards bigots, don't you feel superior to them? If you do, then consider you could be walking in a form of bigotry. 
you could easily miss the point of unconditional love. When Jesus Christ is central in your life, you're free in your heart and free in your relationships. Grace should be the basis of all of our friendships. That's what the book of Ruth is about. It's about God's design. It's about grace. It's about the barrier-breaking power of grace and how the gospel matters. It's a sign of our heart. So, so what's your heart condition? Where do you need to apply more grace to others? I know in my own life, at points, even in recent history, I've been very critical, not understanding, not walking in grace, not walking in the light of the gospel, walking in my own list of self-imposed expectations that have nothing to do with the gospel. I was walking in my culture, not walking in my gospel. Diedrich Bonhoeffer states, Jesus Christ is the binding force of community in its togetherness, gracing Christians to go beyond the superficial, often self-centered relationship of their everyday associations toward a more intimate sense of what it means to be Christ to others, to love others as Christ has loved them. There's that Christian community thing again. The last thing that I want us to see is the radical imperative of discipleship. This is my favorite part of the whole story, really, because it just exposes us. Ruth says, I will obey and do the right thing, and it doesn't, and she doesn't expect a better life. Remember that part in the first chapter where she says, I will go where you go, lodge where you lodge, die where you die? She wasn't expecting a better life. She was in complete submission. She had totally surrendered. So Ruth says, I will obey and do the right thing, and, and she doesn't expect a better life, and she knows she cannot put any conditions on her own obedience. She says, Lord, or she says, may the Lord deal with me. And this is what's really cool. There's a place in Joshua chapter 5, and, and you don't have to turn there, um, in verses 13 and 14, where Joshua, where Joshua is about to fight the battle of Jericho and, and ask God, are you on our side or are you on theirs? And the commander of the Lord of hosts says to Joshua, which was his burning bush experience, no. When you say, God, I will serve you, but... Remember we talked about the agenda last week? 
When you say, God, I will serve you, but really what you're saying is, God, will you come into my life and help me achieve my goals? When you ask God to be on your side, you're saying, God, will you help me with my goals? My goals are sovereign, not you, Lord. God, please serve me so I can reach my goals. God calls us to serve him. If you're asking God if he is on your side, you're asking the wrong question. As soon as you say, I will obey if, on the other side of your if is your real reward. You're just using God to get there. Ruth impoverishes herself to serve her God. Boaz moves out of obedience and not convenience. Do you see the connection with Boaz in Christ? Boaz did not have to show up in that field, and Boaz did not have to redeem that family. Boaz moved out of obedience as Jesus Christ moved out of obedience to the Father to fulfill, to fulfill the design that, had, that God had placed before us as an opportunity for salvation. In light of looking at Ruth, what is hard and mundane in your life that you're privately doubting God in? Seriously, think about that. What are you privately doubting God in? Where has your sufficiency not been met? Where have you not been fed? Where have you not been provided for? What action steps has he called you as a Christian to move in that cause you to pause? What if Ruth had paused? Jesus Christ obediently, sacrificially gave his life for each of us. His fellowship, his grace, his provision is better than seven sons. The thing that became very clear to me this week as, as I finished studying Ruth was that I did have an agenda and that I often want my way and that even in an abundance of provision, I still doubt God sometimes. That became very clear to me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the book of Ruth.
Thank you for loving us enough to show us your design. Father, I just lift up this body as we consider what you've had to say to us, that, Father, that, that our hearts may be hurting. There may be illness. There may be an economic need. There may be a spiritual need. There may be an unspoken need, Father, but that your grace is sufficient to supply those needs. Father, I pray that we would walk together in Christian community where we can be honest with each other, where we can be transparent with each other, where we can carry one another's burdens, where we can love one another the way that you have loved us. Father, forgive us for being prideful. Forgive us for not owning our sin when we should. Thank you, Father, for revealing your plan to us through the book of Ruth. Thank you, Father, that we can celebrate Jesus Christ. Thank you for Easter morning. Thank you for Sunday morning. Father, as we go into the next few minutes, I lift up this fellowship and ask for your protection and direction. In Christ's name we pray, amen.